If you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land. It was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word. Let's pray. Oh God, you're good, and what you do is good. We pray that you would help us to behold all your goodness in this story before us this morning. Father, would you help us to see our sin, but also see our great Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Just because Adam and Eve didn't, doesn't mean we shouldn't. Pardon the triple negative, but what am I talking about here? Am I talking about Adam and Eve's clothing? No, I'm referring to Adam and Eve's trust in their good God, who gave them a beautiful home, meaningful, God-glorifying work, and joyous intimacy and fellowship. He gave them all that, but sadly, they believed the lie of Satan. We don't see that in this passage. We'll see it next week, but we know it's coming. They questioned whether God was truly good. 
whether God was holding out on them, when in reality he held nothing back except the knowledge of evil. God gave them everything good to enjoy. The only not good in Genesis 1 and 2 is quickly resolved. It results in poetry, intimate partnership, and the institution of marriage with no sin and shame to boot. God gave them everything good to enjoy. Shouldn't we trust a good God like that? Shouldn't we trust? Shouldn't we rest in? Shouldn't we delight in? Shouldn't we pursue knowledge of and relationship with a good God like that? Shouldn't we? Again, just because Adam and Eve didn't doesn't mean we shouldn't. So let's look at three reasons that we can delight in our good God. Three signs of his goodness in the beginning, which we still see hints of today, which he promises to give us in full in the future. Three things that God gives paradise, purpose, and partner. First, mankind's paradise. Mankind's paradise. In verses 4 through 14, let's look at verse 4. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Toledoth, uh, these are the generations of, these marks the sections of Genesis. And see chapter 2, this new section, it assumes that you've read the first numbered creation account before this second more detailed look at one aspect of creation, the earth, mankind's home, his setting his paradise. That's why verse 4 inverts that usual order and it ends with the earth and the heavens, backwards from the norm there. goes on, verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. Verse 6, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. There's some debate about what exactly is going on here. John Currid thinks this flashes back to Genesis 1, verses 9 and 10. Others, Young and Collins among them, say this is the early part of day 6 in a particular place on earth where the vegetation had not sprung up yet. Either way, we see this. There's no man to work the ground, no mature plant life, at least not the two varieties named here, at least not at this place. No mature plant life and no rain. Instead, there's a mist, this seemingly subterranean irrigation here. And then verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. The earth now has a gardener, a ruler, bestowed with the very breath of life by the Lord God, it says. See, the transcendent God, or Elohim, as he's called consistently in Genesis 1, he is also eminent, he's near. Here he's called Yahweh Elohim, or Lord God. Yahweh is his covenantal, his personal name, because he's not just high and exalted, he is that. He's also personal, he draws near to man. It says in verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. <clears throat> God either made this garden on day three before he placed the man in it, or he created some new plants in one specific place on the day he created man. Either way, this garden, it's in Eden. One translation of Eden is probably where we get the word paradise, and these verses continue to show us why. Verse nine, 
And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll see more about those two famous trees in a minute, but notice that God causes every tree, quote, that is pleasant to the sight and good for food to spring up here in the garden. Man's home, this garden, it was beautiful. It was fruitful. Imagine the most beautiful orchard or vineyard that you've ever seen. Now make it better. This was better. Imagine the best piece of fruit that you've ever eaten. Personally, I love a good crisp apple, a Fuji, a Gala. I love some fresh pineapple. Maybe you like a good Palisade peach or a peach snow cone. Had one of those this week or a cherry, a nectarine, something else. Now imagine how much better they would be if the ground in which they were grown was not cursed. How much better would they be? Uncursed, unharmed, that's what Eden was. Pristine and beautiful, that's what these trees must have been like. And this, my friends, is mankind's home. And a river runs through it. Verse 10 says, there's a river in Eden giving irrigation Psalm 1 style to all the trees around, and then it flows out, it branches off into four rivers. That gives us an idea of Eden's location as well as its lushness, its luxurious provisions. First, there's the, the Pishon around Havilah. Its location is debated. Havilah had gold, other valuable resources like the mysterious bdellium and onyx stone. Then there's the Gihon, location also unknown. Because people debate where Cush was exactly. Some think it's down near the Nile in the Euphrates. Those need no introduction, not to us, not to anyone back then, Moses' original audience. And see, the point is not to pinpoint Eden on the map. As if we could only, we, as if we could find it, if only Indiana Jones could join us on the journey. Because if Eden still exists, if it wasn't, consumed, if it still exists on earth, I should say, if it wasn't consumed by thorns and thistles, if you could find it, you would find an angel with a flaming sword guarding the entrance, Genesis 3 says. The point is to impress us with the richness of mankind's original home, his original paradise given to him by a good God. A garden, a paradise with Beautiful surroundings, plentiful, delicious food, unharmed by thorns and thistles, unspoiled by the curse, with a tree that promised life, with a river to supply that tree, to keep it growing. What else did man need? Why couldn't they trust this good God who gave them all this? Now, of course, we do not live in Eden. We should neither ignore that nor dwell too much on it, but because this this cursed creation in which we dwell, it's, it's only temporary. It's not our permanent home. The creation itself, it groans for redemption, Romans says. And then another day, we would do well to study the curse, its continuing effects. But as we're gazing at creation, shouldn't we also remember the promises of new creation in Christ? 
Shouldn't we remember the words of Revelation 21 and 22? I believe one of our ladies' Bible studies is going to look at that soon. Revelation 21 says there's a new city that will come down from heaven. God will be with us. He will wipe away every tear. He will make all things new. And then Revelation 22 verses 1 through 3 says it this way. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Why? did Adam and Eve have to sin? Why did they have to ruin our chance at perfection at paradise? Have you ever asked that question? Have your kids ever asked that question? It's a good question. When you see perfection, it's only natural to desire it, right? But who says they ruined our chance at perfection? Paradise may be lost, but it will be located, regained, restored. For all who turn from sin and turn to Christ, paradise will be restored. For all who realize that this life can't fill the deep longing of the human heart, for all who turn and embrace Christ's promise, paradise will be restored. The God who gave us paradise, the God who promises to restore it in the age to come, he is so very good and we can trust him. That leads to our second point. Mankind's purpose. Mankind's purpose. We see it in verses 15 through 17. <clears throat> Look with me. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Mankind was meant to have dominion over the earth. He was meant to rule over the plants, to cultivate them, that they might bring God glory, that they might feed man, they might fuel his imagination for beauty and goodness. Man who is made in the image of his creator. Matt, I kind of hate gardening. Okay, that's because you live after Genesis 3. And if you do love gardening, then that's good too. You can apparently see God's glory and his promise even shining through the curse. But again, man was given a job. He was given a calling. Before sin, man was called to work. I didn't hear an Amen. That may not sound grand and glorious. It may give you visions of memos and emails and incompetent coworkers. But again, that's because we live after Genesis 3. So we have to imagine just a bit what work was like before the fall, but it's not impossible. The movie Chariots of Fire, there's a fabulous line from Eric Liddell, the future missionary who also won a gold medal in the Olympics. He says, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. By the way, Little didn't say those words in real life, but they are probably an accurate summary. What he did say is this, God made me for China. How many Christians in China might owe him a thank you? Who knows? But how did God make you? What did he make you to do? Where do you feel his pleasure? What makes you say, the Lord made me to do this? to be free in his service, to bless the world, to glorify God. 
you may not know yet. And contrary to Curly and City Slickers, it may not be just one thing, by the way. It may be multiple things where you feel God's pleasure. Because doesn't our shorter, shorter catechism say that everything we do can glorify God, can lead to our joy? Mankind was meant to glorify God, to enjoy him, to enjoy his creation, to, to work it and to keep it, to cultivate the ground, to rule over everything in it, whether it's the fish and the sea, computers and commuter trains, spreadsheets and science experiments, as well as reading, writing, arithmetic. That last one means math, by the way, kids. Man was meant to work it and keep it, to work the ground, to keep it, to rule over everything in it. Those words work and keep. In Hebrew, it's avev and shamar. Two Hebrew verbs that can also be translated serve and obey that imply worship when they're used, for example, in Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13. You see, we can rightly say that all of life is worship and that everything we do can be done in a way that glorifies God. We can also say that God commands us to worship corporately with his people on one day in seven so that we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. You see, at the end of the day, church isn't about you. I hope that's not a newsflash. It's about God's glory. It's about serving God's people. But, but those commands come just a bit later. Right now, mankind actually has only one command to worry about, right? As he keeps and works the garden, as he serves and obeys his God, what's the one command that God gives? Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Dying, you shall die. You shall surely die. This is commonly called the covenant of works or the covenant of life. It summarizes the work that man was commanded to do as well as the implied blessing that would be attached to it. By the way, the idea that all of scripture being a series of unfolding covenants, that idea dates all the way back to the church fathers. That's for another day. But man is given this command. In the context, think about what he's given. He is given nearly limitless provision. And only one prohibition, one negative command. Don't eat that tree. You can have all the others. Paradise is yours. Just not that one. By the way, we do know where the tree of life was based on what verse 9 says. It's not at Disney World in Orlando. It's in the middle of the garden. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We don't know that one's location. We also don't know exactly what it meant. What kind of knowledge would it impart? There are various theories. It doesn't seem to have held forth omniscience for all those who ate it, but I think the best theory is that it gave them knowledge of evil. Think about it. What evil do Adam and Eve behold before they sin and eat of the tree? What evil do they know about? Well, we have to admit our knowledge of that tree is inconclusive. What I just said is somewhat speculative. Our knowledge is inconclusive, and there's a reason for that. The always quotable Derek Kidner says, in the context, however, the emphasis falls on the prohibition rather than the properties of the tree. It is shown to us as forbidden. 
It is idle to ask what it might mean in itself. This was Eve's error. Might be our error as well. We want to know more details. When what God said is more than enough to show us the path to life instead of the path to death. We're tempted to ask unfruitful questions, pun intended. But what do we know? We know that there are better trees awaiting us in heaven. We know that fruitful labor, joyous worship awaits us in heaven. And most of all, if we're in Christ, we know that heaven itself awaits us. And we don't deserve it. We've all sinned like Adam. We've all deserved the death that began soon after this. And the only reason we have life instead of death is the actions of another. It's because of someone who obeyed God in our place and suffered our penalty in our place. There's an old hymn that goes like this. Upon a life I have not lived. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. The one who obeyed in your place and mine. Is he still good? Is he still trustworthy? Is he still worthy of our worship? Is that still a worthy purpose, pursuit for mankind? After paradise, after purpose, we also see this. We see thirdly, man's partner. Man's partner in verses 18 through 25. Man meets his partner. You could also say woman meets hers as well. God creates, does it for six days. He says, yep, this is good. Then also on day six, after he said, this is good, he creates man. He, he waits, seemingly, as it says here, to create woman. Why? To highlight man's need of fellowship, of communion, friendship. Verse 18, the Lord, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It's the first not good in scripture. And by the way, if you're single, I'm not going to spend all my time talking about marriage. If you're single, you too should realize that God has not made you for solitude. He's made you for relationship, both with God and with other human beings. And so if you're an introvert, then make the effort to greet your neighbors at church, wherever it might be. If you're an extrovert, then serve the introverts by introducing yourself first. And also by asking them a question, also by listening, ceasing to talk. We can do it, extroverts. I promise we can. But, but this is not good, God says. Man is alone. And man cannot fulfill the command of Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply alone. He can't do it. So where will he find a helper? Again, helper does not imply inferiority. God is called man's helper at times in the Bible, and what does it say? A helper fit for him, a helper corresponding to man's opposite. That's the idea. It says that in a footnote in my ESV here. How will God provide one? Well, verse 19 shows us the animals whom God, quote, had formed. Notice the verb tense. The animals were already there, but this man-centric view of creation in Genesis 2, it doesn't mention them till now. Adam's looking for a helper. Next, he sees the animals. He, he names them. How long did that take, by the way? Well, probably less time than it would 
take right now because unfallen man may have had much greater intellectual abilities than us, even if he only had them for a short time. But, but no animal is found that can be his helper, a partner that corresponds to his opposite. Not even dogs, good as dogs are. They correspond, the animals do, to each other. Where is Adam's partner? God would have to create her, as he does in verse 21, using a divine anesthetic to put Adam to sleep, shielding him from the pain of rib removal surgery. So he creates Eve, as the common proverb goes, he creates Eve not from Adam's head that she might rule him, not from his foot that he might trample on her, but from his rib that she might protect his heart. And then like the father of the bride in verse 22, God leads the woman to the man. Notice one woman to one man. Polygamy is not seen until after the fall. It's not God's design. One woman for one man. And there's almost an equal emphasis here, I think, on the similarity, the equality, bone of my bones, and the, the differences between man and woman. I think it's right to acknowledge both of them, man and woman, are equal in many ways. Both created in God's image. Both have sinned. Both can be redeemed to become children of God and Jesus Christ. The late Elizabeth Elliot said that one's sex, one's gender is, quote, irrelevant to our qualifications for being members of Christ's body. And within the body of Christ, on the other hand, within the, within the unique bond of Christian marriage, we are called... First, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5, 21. And husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That's verse 25. And wives are called to submit to their husbands, verses 22 to 24. Is that confusing? Submit to one another. Wives, submit to your husbands. Is it confusing? Is it contradictory? Not at all, says the late James Montgomery Boyce. Husbands and wives merely submit to one another and serve one another in different ways. Wives serve their husbands by submitting to him as the head of the home, by nurturing the home, by affirming his leadership. Husbands serve their wives by loving her as Christ loved the church. Spend a bit of time on that one. That one's not an easy one. How did Christ love the church? He died for her. Daily death to self is what it calls for. Husbands serve their wives by loving her as Christ loved the church, by building her up, by leaving father and mother to cling to her. Men, how do you love your wife sacrificially in 2023? If you lead, you may be charged with toxic masculinity by someone. If you don't do anything for fear of someone saying something mean about you, well, you haven't fulfilled his calling either. Now have you? But mostly, we need to obey our God, love our wives, and not be jerks in the process. I'm not trying to be flippant, and I'm not trying to minimize the first two. I say it that way for this reason. Most of the women in our lives have seen plenty of bad examples of manhood. Macho men who are covering their own insecurity. Selfish men who only care about themselves, who use women to fulfill their needs, or passive men who are afraid to do anything, afraid of their own shadow. 
Maybe they've only seen one bad example and plenty of good ones, maybe. But even one bad example can sour someone. So yeah, you're swimming against the tide. You're fighting an uphill battle. But if you try by God's grace to live a Christ-like life in all of your relationships with women, don't you think your good God will help you rise and meet the challenge? Because isn't our God good? Haven't we seen it over and over again in these first two chapters of Genesis? Isn't our God good? Verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man at last. If you hear Etta James singing in the background, that's fine. At last, you've got poetry here. Men, what, what if our women heard more poetry, more praise out of us? What if they heard a bit less complaining and pouting? Let's try it and see. But what a glorious pronouncement from Adam here. He sees at last what he has longed for. And it's not merely a comment on her beauty, though I bet she was beautiful. It's a comment on how right she is for him. A helper corresponding to his opposite. A helper fit for him, it's a hint of how right marriage can still be, even on this side of the fall, when we live according to God's command to love our spouse in Christ-like service. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Keep in mind, this is a countercultural thing back then, to leave one's larger clan to form a new family. And it's still instructive to us today. In marriage, we hold fast to our beloved, forsaking all others, as most marriage vows say. And then verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You could say they were fully known to each other, fully one with each other, and they knew no shame, no rejection, no fear, only Perfect intimacy in their state of pristine innocence in the words of Sarna. Can life ever be that good between paradise lost and paradise restored? Can we ever be fully known by another without any rejection, without any fear? Yes, and we begin to experience it every time we forgive one another, especially within the estate of marriage. But even then, it only approaches it. It's only a hint of perfect intimacy, that perfect knowledge married to perfect acceptance. Why am I being cryptic, you might wonder? Why am I being mysterious? Because, my friends, it is a mystery. Ephesians 5, 31, see if any of these words sound familiar. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's a mystery revealed. In Christ, you can be perfectly known, despite all your sin and shame, and still perfectly accepted, perfectly loved. You can call on God to search you and know you, know your heart, to try you and know your thoughts. You can do all that without fear, because perfect love casts out fear. 
Sometimes this world we live in, full of cynicism and so many other things, it makes us so afraid to hope for anything good. It makes us afraid to trust. But then along comes our good God, the one who's given us paradise, a purpose, and a perfect partner. And though we've thrown it all away through sin, he offers to give it to us once again if we come to Christ, forsaking all others and resting in him alone, trusting in his goodness, which he has proved time and time again. We'll end the way we started Trust in God's goodness, my friends, just because Adam and Eve didn't doesn't mean we shouldn't. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we are so very glad that we serve such a good God. We know that we have forfeited any right to that goodness, and yet at the same time, we know it is available to us in Christ, our Savior, our substitute, the one who died the death we don't have to die, the painful, shameful death on the cross where the wrath of God was poured out full strength upon him. What we deserve, what we don't have to experience. We know he did that. We know he lived the life we could not live, obeying in our place and doing so perfectly. Father, in light of all that, in light of all the goodness that's held out to us, would you help us to taste and see that you are good? Would you help us to forsake all of our sin, all of our idols, all of the things that we think will bring us joy and satisfaction? Help us to forsake them, forsaking all others. Help us to rest in you, to trust in you, to revel in your goodness. We pray it all in Jesus' great name. Amen.